Hello, and welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. I'm your host, David Levy, and today we have the first ever episode of the Maximum Book Club, in which we'll be discussing Anna DeVere Smith's Letters to a Young Artist. In my own life as an actress and playwright, I've been influenced by many artists, teachers, students, scientists, scholars, and activists. I've been influenced by audiences and by people whom I've never met but only read about in history books. Now I want to pass along to you some of the things I've learned. All right, let's get started for our inaugural book club. Uh, Before we introduce our guest, I just need to apologize. It's supposed to be a roundtable discussion with three of us, and unfortunately, Jose got sick this morning, so he wasn't able to join us. Um, But we're going to do our best for giving you a robust discussion of letters from a young artist. So... Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Rachel. Uh, online, I'm also known at LudisNYC on Twitter. Um, you might have seen my blog, LudisNYC.com, which is honestly these days updated only sporadically, but I still like to share on there when I have strong opinions about something theater related. Great. And uh, I understand you have some strong opinions about this book. Yes, I do. Um, I listened to the audiobook on the way down to Atlantic City, which I I wonder if that might have also had maybe an effect on my feelings on this book. Okay, so first off, let's talk about things that I liked about it because I like I like to start out kind of on the positive side of it. I really appreciated the range of artists that she talked about and the different mediums that she talked about that she, even though she's obviously best known as a writer and a performer, that she spoke about uh, like visual art. She talked about painting. She talked about going to museums. Uh, she didn't just stick to acting and writing. That was probably one, one of my favorite parts about it was just kind of hearing her opinions about these different artists and some of her interactions with artists across different mediums. And uh, I think probably my biggest issue with it is the framing device of it. I don't know how you feel about the framing device of the letters to someone that we never get to hear the other side of so these that, letters. Yeah, I I found it a little challenging too. For anyone who's listening without having read the book, yes. the format is that she is writing letters to an imaginary person who does not exist in real life Yep, uh, that she calls BZ, who at the start of their correspondence is in high school and the correspondence continues through his college career, mm-hmm. the device is that someone in his life, maybe his grandmother, had like won the privilege of her mentorship in a charity auction. Yeah, where they, there's a really weird throwaway line about uh, yeah about being on an auction block. I guess you heard that you won me in an auction, for better or for worse. I've agreed to mentor you for a period of five years. Somebody you know. Have I got it right that it was your grandmother? made the highest bid on me as an item at a charity fundraiser. My deal was that I would mentor whoever won me at the auction in some way for the next five years. This is new for me. I've never been auctioned before. My ancestors were. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. That's like right up front. So, so already that's a little bit contrived. And then to make it even more contrived, the the letters aren't presented in chronological order rather yes. they are themed uh they're lumped together by theme which in some ways makes sense but it also mm-hmm. it took me a little while to figure out that sometimes he's in high school and sometimes he's in college and sometimes yeah. he's 
uh, a much younger artist and sometimes he's uh, a much more developed artist and especially because the letters aren't dated until the end so yeah that's uh, a big problem primarily read this as an audiobook although i did also uh, revisit it after listening to it as text and wondered if that would be different on the page and it isn't because you don't know until you get to the end of the letter is this 1999 is it 2005 and then the, the other thing that makes that complicated is that her career changed quite a bit during that time. Yeah. And she's a little bit better at giving you sort of fake markers about where BZ is at this point. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's super awkward. She's like, so in your letter, you told me. And then she recaps a letter that doesn't exist because he didn't write it because he's yeah. not a person. Uh, but at least it sort of situates you in what she wants to address, however awkwardly that might be. And sometimes she'll say things like, I'm on the set of The West Wing. But it's also, it's really hard to trace her development, especially because, you know, at the start of this, she's really, from what I remember, only only known as a a theater writer, known for her one-person shows that she also uh, performed in. Yeah. And by the end, you know, she's a recurring character on a very popular TV show, and she's been in a few movies. So her, her position as an artist changes over the course of the time that she's giving advice. And sometimes there are are signposts to sort of remind you of that, but sometimes that gets a little bit lost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because before she might've been someone that's a little bit more niche and a little bit more regional, but it's like, if you live nearby where she's mounting one of her shows, you might've seen her or heard of her, but otherwise you might not have. But now it's like she's on Blackish. She has a recurring role on Blackish. She has had, of course, a recurring role on West Wing. Um, she was in one of my favorite movies of last year, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which absolutely love. Uh, and I think I think she's a really excellent performer. Just I, I don't know what your feelings are on her as an actress or as a writer. Well, so it's interesting. Outside of this book, of course. Prior to reading this book, I knew her by reputation. And I definitely remember her from the West Wing, but yeah. I'm not sure that she's someone who I would always recognize if she popped up somewhere that I wasn't expecting her. And I don't mm. think I'd ever seen any of her own work. Last night I watched, she did a TV version of, she actually had done TV versions of three of her her one-woman shows. Mm-hmm. The first one, Fires in the Mirror, she did for American Playhouse, and I found it on YouTube, and I watched that. And it's interesting. She's... I don't know that her one-person work translates to film. It's very, very theatrical. Yeah, yeah. And in particular, so Fires in the Mirror, if you don't know it, is it's a show based on her verbatim interviews with people who were involved in the Crown Heights riots of 1991 in which a black child was run over by a Hasidic man and then later on the same day... Um, a different Hasidic man was murdered, and then there was uh, sort of a, a season of just both violence and also uh, a war of words in the press and in the courts. And uh, so she interviewed people on on both sides of this yeah. divide and uh, at sort of all levels of society and then portrayed them in the show. And it's the kind of thing that is so theatrical because she is you know she's uh covering her head and playing a Hasidic housewife and then putting on a suit and playing all Sharpton and and it's uh, once you put that on film and once you put that in 
somewhat realistic settings, it's it's a different beast. Yeah. And I found it a little uncomfortable because even if her portrayals were actually spot on to how these people are, sometimes they come across as caricatures yeah. in ways that are uncomfortable. Which I found that in the audiobook too, mm-hmm. at points when she was especially recounting conversations that she had with people. They did come across a bit broad yeah. at times. Yeah. And it's interesting because this week that we're recording, there's a revival of Fires in the Mirror coming up at the Signature Theater where the parts will be played by a man instead of by her. And it'll be interesting to see a different take and what that does to it. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. I, I, I do hope I get to see it because I'm, I'm very interested. In yeah. I remember uh, studying it in college, definitely. Um, and I've never had the chance to see it live on stage. So perfect opportunity to do so. Yeah, and they've extended the run twice. It's been very popular. The original run is all sold out. So if you're listening, you're like, oh, that's something I want to see. You should probably get on that uh, as quickly as you can. There was there was something else that I wanted to bring up, actually, uh, uh, from one of one of the chapters I was listening to again last night, right before coming here. Uh, so the chapter when she's talking about going to the medical school. And I marveled at the composure of the doctors as they discussed real life, real terror, real pain, real death, and the emotion of the artists as they talked in metaphor. But this is the very thing that makes me love artists so much. The heart, the soul, the lack of composure, the mess. The image that was given to me of the long-haired student wrapped in her scarf trying to be incognito among the doctors in their white coats at 8 a.m. I just love them. Wouldn't it be nice if the actors had some of the scientific distance of the doctors? Wouldn't it be nice if the doctors had some of the empathy of the actors? I have some feelings about that statement um, because I I have family members that work in the medical field and I have to say that I think, I think that that characterization was very unfair. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if that stood out to you or not, but I, I did, I didn't really like that characterization of it that it's like, Oh, well, you know, actors can take this thing from medical professionals. Medical professionals can take this from actors. And it's like, well, a lot of doctors can't walk around with their hearts on their sleeves because they're having to be the strong ones for people that are going through very personal things. Uh, so, And I also think that if you're dealing with life-threatening illness on a day-to-day basis, empathy, too much empathy uh, is... A health hazard for you yes absolutely it's funny that chapter stood out to me not for that reason but because she does this whole thing about describing how the audience sort of self-segregated and what each half yeah. looked like and then was like surprise the ones who were all dressed up proper and taking notes were the actors bet you didn't expect that and it, it again it, like mm-hmm. it, it was one of those things that didn't quite it felt like she maybe constructed a little bit to make a point more than and look, this is this is not a piece of journalism. So, yeah. you know, if she wants to do that, that's fine. Um, but that was not one of the chapters that really resonated with truth for me. Yeah, same here. Um, so, I, I guess my question would be, what parts resonated for you in the book? So, so one of the things I liked that was pretty early on, um, she talks about 
how talk about what it's like to get feedback on art mm. and she reproduces a, a brief scene from the seagull by Chekhov. the 19th century russian playwright anton Chekhov's great play the seagull captures this perfectly in one of the opening scenes a young man kostya is putting on a play it's an innovative play it isn't ever clear whether it's a good play he casts a girl whom he loves in the play she seems distracted he presents the play for his mother a famous actress who's visiting the country estate where he lives with his aging uncle his mother is accompanied by her lover who's a famous writer everything goes wrong it's a catastrophe and he's beside himself a family friend dr dorn approaches him when all the audience has left and says i liked your play what he meant was he understood what Kostya was trying to do. Robert Brustein, critic and former head of the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, said to me once that we all need a Dr. Dorn. I thought that was a very telling moment. Yeah. Um, and I feel like sometimes uh, when we talk about what's the role of critics, we talk about is the role of the critic to communicate that something was good or bad or is it to say did the artist achieve what they set out to do or did they also evaluate whether what the artist set out to do was something that was worthy of putting the time and effort to set out to do which is something that's being debated again this week with the lightning thief absolutely <laughs> uh so maybe that's part of the reason why this jumped out at me um both both times I actually read that chapter um uh, and I try to think about how that might also apply to her work, uh, which, again, like so having just watched Fire in the Mirror, mm -hmm. it's the kind of, it is a challenging and hard piece. And to say you like it, it's not about enjoyment. It's not the yeah. kind of theater you want to enjoy. It's the kind of theater that's supposed to make you think and make you feel maybe, but not enjoy in the sense of have a good time or have fun. Yeah. You know, uh, so So I can see why that's, why that's a, an example that jumped out at her. Yeah. And actually, speaking of theater that challenges and is not necessarily meant to be straight up enjoyed, that actually brings me around to, I, I kept thinking, well, if I don't really like the framing device that she's using for this, if I was, say, her editor and asking her to rework this, like, how would, how would I ask her to do it? Which... I think it would be better if you actually did have an ongoing letter back and ba back and forth conversation between her and a young, an actual young artist that's coming up in the field. And I thought of Jeremy O'Harris with the slave play. And I am kind of imagined what this would look like then if you were doing something like this today and actually having the two of them in conversation about some of these subjects and especially having someone that is very, self-assured and willing to push back maybe on certain things mm. and it's interesting because i feel like we do get examples now of older artists and younger artists in conversation but never over yeah. this length of time and i think that's uh what makes it both challenging and also sort of appealing yeah to think um and now i can also see why a young artist today might that that's a big investment yeah but at the same time, I don't know. I think I, I don't. I don't particularly think of myself as an artist these days. But I think of myself when I was in college, and nothing was more terrifying to me than having more established artists 
look at what I was doing. Oh, it's the worst. Right? And, <laughs> and it's funny, too, because when I think about, gosh, if there was one thing I would have done differently with the art I did in college, it would have been to seek mentorship and advice from yeah. established artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish, I wish I could have gotten out of my own way. And so I do wonder uh, if people today, and certainly, obviously, people who have shows on Broadway are in a different position than someone who's just doing some undergraduate guerrilla theater. But yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's scary. Yeah. Well, I think that especially the times when she's talking about notions of the man and she's talking about notions sort of of gatekeeping and the roles that race and sexuality play in getting, like getting your work out there. I think that, having having someone else that's actually there instead of just an ambiguous someone that you can like project things onto or that you can like actually having someone there instead of just this nothing i think that's my biggest problem with it because you only really get her opinion in it which granted i guess you're buying her book so of course you're getting her opinion but as a result it comes off sometimes as a bit condescending and a little bit like a little vague yeah yeah it's hard because because there's not a real person on the other end yeah she's sometimes makes sort of pronouncements that come across as an attempt to be universal but without having an actual real person to apply those to instead of being universal they just end up as being a little bit diffuse Um, yeah so you can, so I, in some ways, I think the parts that were most appealing to me were when she instead sort of was reflective on her own experience, almost yeah. like offering her own advice to herself as a younger artist. I thought the section about the man was really interesting because she goes through this whole thing about having to remind herself, really, that you know sometimes people of color can be the man, too. It's not just yeah. about um, who holds the saddle power. It's about who holds power in the particular situation that you're in and talking about her relationship with George C. Wolfe, where again, because he's a known quantity to many of us who've read it, that makes it even more possible to understand how he's both someone who's a friend and a collaborator, but also the head of an institution Mm -hmm. and a producer and uh, really holds a lot of the keys to whether or not she's going to be able to move forward with her projects, for example. Yeah. It's much easier to understand her relationship with George C. Wolfe as someone who has authority and power versus let's talk about the man as a concept. But by being able to do those things together, it it personalizes the conceptual in a way that I thought was helpful. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that ultimately when she's talking about that, it isn't necess- it isn't a demonization of people in that position. Like especially the thing of you don't want to be the man. Being the man is tough and it's like (laughs) it has its own challenges that you do not want as an artist necessarily um and i i also wanted to bring up there was there was another chapter that um that kind of hit home for me and it was a little frustrating that wasn't more specific kind of like what we're talking about uh the chapter where she's talking about cutting the art program Mm. at the school where um, her make-believe friend. Yeah, her is, make-believe. When he's in high school. 
right? Or is it when he's in college? There's, he's in college, Well, it's I actually think. funny. It happens well, twice, yeah. right? So when he's in high school, it's not so much that it's cutting. It's that it doesn't really exist at all. And then when yeah. he's in college, there's a question about... Uh, the biology program. Right, taking yeah. over the studio space to turn into a lab. Yeah. Because my school like, went through a very similar situation. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't due to, oh, well, this program needs, like needs the lab space or something like that. It was a question of that there had been mismanagement of funds by the president of the school Ooh. who recently who left and then the next president cracked open the books and went, well, shit, we're millions of dollars in debt and we have to make cuts somewhere to the point that they were eliminating whole programs. Um, I feel like her characterization that it's like, well, you need to like come join the grown-up discussion about where to get the money for this thing. It's like, well, that's not always the case. Sometimes it is the case that, you know, there just isn't anything there. So what do you do in that situation? Yeah, I thought, so that did feel like she was trying to respond to something that pops up in the news all the time. About, yeah. Uh, although I feel like it's more often at the high school level of older districts deciding to eliminate arts programs, but uh, I understand why she wanted to move to college because certainly college students are more able to do things like reach out to donors or whatever it is that she's proposing. Yeah. Um, I. It's funny, what I took away from that section was more about how she was trying really hard to encourage them not to vilify the biology students and not yeah. to write off the importance of biology. Yeah, and uh, I do agree with that, yeah. But it's funny to me because I feel like uh, while yes, that's important. It felt a little bit of a reversal of what actually happens in real life. Yeah, right. Like I, I feel like I can't think of a time when a artist or an art student has ever been like, "Well, who needs science?" Um, yeah, that's what politicians do, not what artists do. <laughs> um, whereas uh, I feel like we hear all the time from uh, people in the sciences about like who needs arts, who needs the humanities, and maybe that's just the difference between two thousand five when this book was published and yeah. 2019 when we're in a different place with regards to you know this sort of uh overemphasis of uh science technology engineering and mathematics <laughs> yeah i think like we're, we're i mean 2005 you think about it, it's been at this point 14 years since this book came out and i think the the biggest barrier for me in getting so much out of this book is that the world of art has changed so much. Well, the world has changed so much. Yeah. I mean, this is during the Bush presidency. Yeah. Uh, and that's total eras have come and gone since then. Yeah. And that doesn't, that doesn't speak too highly about maybe the longevity of it, of certain parts of it, that in this time that there's already been so much change that some parts of it feel supremely dated or that it doesn't like, obviously there was no way for it in the time that it came out to address things. Like, I mean, of course the oversaturation of artists being able to put out their work in places like YouTube and the, like the internet. And, and that really hits home right up front because the very first thing she talks about is this concept of presence. Yeah. And uh, she has this quote where she says, I think that presence will soon be based on authenticity. And I just read that and was like, oh, honey, like you have no idea what's about to happen. Yeah. Like, authenticity <laughs> is, is 
not even part of the equation anymore. Yeah. No one could really predict what was about to happen with social media. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of thinking about how artists function in the world vis-a-vis their their audiences and their funders and even their colleagues, like that I think has just changed so significantly that yeah. um, that it makes a lot of that part of the book feel a little bit antiquated. Yeah. But there are parts I thought are still relevant. To, yeah. Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like I've been supremely negative about it, but there there is a lot that you can take away from the, bu- the book. What did you think about her discussion of confidence versus determination? Do you remember that? Ooh, you're going to have to refresh my memory on so, that one. So she basically says confidence should not be the goal. Confidence is a static state. Determination is active. Determination allows for doubt and for humility, both of which are critical in the world today. There is so much that we don't know and so much that we know we don't know. To be overly confident or without doubt seems silly to me. And so it's you don't have to be confident to keep moving forward. Yeah. You do have to be determined. Yeah. And it's funny because I never really thought of those as different sides of the same coin. And I thought that was an interesting argument to make. It's when she talks to the, her, her rodeo friend. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She compares the process of making art to staying on that bull. Yeah. And that you only need to stay on the bull for eight seconds, but it, you need to make it like the best eight seconds. Yeah, exactly. Well, now that now that you've recapped it to me, like it do, it does come back with it, within that same thread. The thing that that stuck with me about that particular discussion was her talking about putting in the work, like mm-hmm. the the notion of routine, the the notion of that, as you said, like the feeling, like I uh, like having a feeling versus having like action. Um, getting up and like her talking about her routine of going and uh, doing like her addiction lessons, doing her swimming, um, that it's that being an artist is not this like sort of nebulous, like I sit around with a uh, a beret and drink my coffee and think about art. It's a thing of that. No, you have to like put in the work you like. This is an action. You need to treat this as a job and treat yourself as the product the other thing i liked was that she tries to push back on the idea that artists need to be miserable to make good art yes oh my gosh (laughs) that that made me very happy just the idea that like artists can be happy and that um again thinking i think it's talking about like sort of the professionalism of being an artist that it is a job and that uh it doesn't have to be and maybe shouldn't be your sole identity. Yeah. Um, and that you can do the work and you don't have to only mine your own, you know, troubled life. For, and I, listen, she's someone who her, her greatest work has come from interviewing other people. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, it's it's related, but I think it's, it's an, I think it's accurate to say that, you know, at the most basic level, there's like more than one source of inspiration. And, and it's also interesting that her work is 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 very process oriented, and it's very much. I mean, certainly there is inspiration, in the, and clearly there is artistry, but there's also just uh, there's a lot of of like small w work to do. Like she's going to do uh, hours of interviews. Yeah. She has to 
travel to meet people. She has to <laughs> just even just thinking about transcribing interviews, which is so uh, miserable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, before she even starts to shape it into a show. And she talks. Uh, one of the parts that I found really moving was when she talks about the reception to her work. Yeah. And how, uh, how hurtful it was that people didn't see her as an artist, but as just like a, like a secretary. Like, yeah. Like as though somehow uh, like there, like she didn't have a hand in selecting the words to put into the play and, and choosing the order and all like that. It is like such a devaluing of, of the writing that she did. And, you know, this was, I think the New York times critic who, uh, no, no, Frank Rich, I think was one of her supporters, but was one of the newspaper critics who, yeah. who had said like, Oh, she's, you know, I, I can't imagine her getting a Tony because she didn't even really write it. Yeah. Um, which is just nuts. Right. Absolutely insane. Not to mention the fact that, and uh, my background is actually in film and like I've, I've worked like in documentary film, get gaining the trust of your subjects in order to open up about very traumatic times in their life and knowing the right words and knowing the right, the right way to get them there is so important too and discounting that in her work i think is a mistake yeah and then for her to to really open up with vulnerability about what it meant that her father didn't really understand her work yeah that he couldn't really even sit and watch it especially when you think back to that very beginning part about the seagull where um you know she said that to like work is really to understand it yeah he couldn't understand it uh and 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 to also just bear her pain at what the award season felt like because for her it wasn't about getting an award as a pat on the back but it really was about getting an award would mean that her show could stay open and more people could see it and also being really open and honest about what that means in terms of her career opportunities that it would unlock yeah absolutely and i thought it was now granted this was long enough after that happened that maybe there's not as much risk in putting that out there but it felt like really brave for her to be so vulnerable and i was trying to imagine would a male artist ever write that and i i couldn't picture it, it yeah. just and it's funny because the only other person i can think of who's ever where i've ever seen them sharing about what a t- specifically what a tony word could mean to a career and and why therefore it has so much power uh, was also another black woman. It was uh, Tanya Pinkins in, mm-hmm. um, yeah. in the book, There's Nothing Like a Dame, which is a, a series of interviews with different leading ladies from Broadway, all of whom are Tony winners. Um, and interestingly, her interview, I think, wasn't even in the book proper. It was like a bonus feature that you download as a PDF. Um, <laughs> but she spoke very candidly about how not only did she understand that that Tony Award would potentially make the difference between having a career and not having a career, but that she therefore invested in it and you know hired a personal publicist and and really made sure that she stayed in the spotlight and gave those interviews and made herself available not because she wanted the spotlight as a spotlight but because she saw it as a way to ensure career longevity and um i always appreciate is when artists are willing to sort of draw back that curtain a little bit yeah show that like sometimes sometimes as an audience member you can just be like oh another interview with this person is nominee but but it's it's not because they're full of themselves it's because they're trying to make a living Mm -hmm. exactly i mean 
like how are the voters supposed to know to vote for you if you're not out there if you're not if they're like <laughs> i think about the uh every year there's the oscar voter the anonymous oscar oh, voters that. that are <laughs> 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 and you and you think about these this is the mindset of so many people that go in to vote for these awards of course they're going to be do campaigning for it right because otherwise they're going to forget that they're even on the ballot right and so. especially for live theater where you can't easily go back and revisit yeah. it. you know it's not like you have a screener sitting in your your office so that you can just like oh did i really like her performance i don't know i saw it in march you know yeah exactly so a big part of this book is uh, or the conceit of this book is that she's speaking to a young artist and i wonder we've talked a lot about how this reads differently because the world has moved on, but also like, yeah. you know, we're not college students now. And I do wonder too, do you think that a college student today would be able to read this and get something out of it in a way that maybe because we've had a little bit more life under our belts that maybe we're not? Yeah, I I absolutely would agree with that. And this, this is a book that I would certainly recommend at least large passages from it. Like it would be a thing where I would say, okay, you should definitely read this book if you can't read the entire thing, which, honestly, if you can't read the whole thing, I mean, it's it's not even that long of a book. And but it's also very modular. Like, it's not yeah. because it's thematic. You don't have to read it cover to cover. It's like a great, like, flip, flip to the mm -hmm. chapter that has a title that interests you and see what she has to say. Yeah. Um, I think that she has really great things to say about as far as putting in the work, as far as kind of like curiosity in the world, which I, I think is so important as an artist to constantly be kind of seeking out new things, to constantly be showing an interest even in art that might not be your medium, but might provide some inspiration for you. But I th I think that, yeah, I, I really do think that this is meant for a younger audience, but I think that there's certain things in it that as older artists, sometimes we take for granted or that we maybe don't like that we hear it and we're like, oh, that's right. Yeah, I really should be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like it was it was really great this week uh, revisiting this to hear again the whole thing about routine, the whole thing about because um, that's something that I definitely struggle with mm -hmm. as far as getting like putting in the work, knowing that every day I need to be writing every day I need to be like doing these things. So it was it was just kind of a great refresher on that. It's not necessarily anything revolutionary or anything that I haven't heard before, but it was it was still nice to hear it. It's funny too. I realized that after I picked this book that advice books are also their own sort of thing and they're not for everyone. And yeah. honestly, I picked this book because I wanted to learn more about where she's coming from and because it wasn't very long and I yeah. thought that would make a, a good book club book that people could read along with and, and make it easier. What I didn't really think about was like, Oh gee, advice books sometimes are harder to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was hoping for a little more insight into process and a little less yeah. philosophy. I think maybe that's, that's where, what I was hoping for is, something a little more about like here's how i do it here's where i stumble here's where i where i go when i'm feeling uninspired and that's just not what this book is yeah 
And I'd love to see a book that's the full on nitty nitty gritty stuff. Some like a book that's about how to do your taxes as a freelancer. Oh my god! <laughs> um, like how to get into a union. It would it would be amazing if because I certainly didn't get that in college. I think we had like one senior seminar where it was like, here's how to make a resume. Because <laughs> this is totally not something that you could read like a million articles online about and learn how to do. I think a little bit of I don't know if you remember uh, annoying actor friend on Twitter. Yes, and, uh, which yep. is Andrew Brightus mm-hmm. is his real name, and he wrote a couple of books. One of which is really aimed at at high school students thinking about if they want to go to college for theater, how to do it, and one that's a little bit more general about like how not to be the annoying actor, something sort of like that. But I mean, he he's really writing very specifically for actors, and you know, I I. I love that this book, Letters to Young Artists, really attempts to speak to artists of all of um, all disciplines. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe that's also part of, that's both a strength and a weakness. Yeah. Uh, because maybe getting into the nitty gritty too much becomes less relevant. I don't know. I think maybe what would have, what would have made the book, I think, a little bit better is if she focused more, like that it's, that it's through the viewpoint of an actress slash writer looking at these different mediums, looking at painting, looking at these things, as opposed to trying to address what it's like to be a painter, what it's like to be like all those things. Do you have any, uh, any final thoughts or closing ideas about the book? I mean, I, I think that it's still worth picking up, especially if you are young and you are thinking about going into the arts or even if you're you're a young person, you just kind of want to understand a little bit more about what the artistic field, like the kind of work that goes into it and having a deeper appreciation for if you have friends that are going into the arts or family members that are in the arts, um, knowing that it's not just, oh, you get to play a character and that's, you know, that it's not real work, that it's like, no, being an artist is incredibly difficult and personal and... You have to put yourself out there in a lot of ways that people don't have to do on a daily basis with their work. So, yeah, and I think if I had approached it thinking thinking of it more as like a motivational text than an instructional text, yeah, perhaps I would have gotten a little more out of it. And I think that that's uh, maybe when I think about who should read this book, like I think people who are thinking about, you know, is this the career for me? Is this something that I can really put put myself into and and work at day after day? I think that this book, uh, for all of the ways in which it may be a little bit outdated, I think it does sort of address like this is what it feels like to pursue this. Again, on a philosophical level, not so much on a like here's what you actually have to go through level. And I think that uh, that is a motivational tool. It, it's probably pretty useful. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this conversation. Yes. Thank you for having me. All right. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum. You can find me, David Levy, as It's D. Levy. And you can find Rachel as Ludus NYC. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we have merch. 
You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximoisms on them. You can find them all on the store at Maximoo.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. See you again soon.